Well, you'll be encouraged to know that I've got three hours worth of material here. I've tried to condense it down. Oh, poor boy, nearly fell off a chair. Uh, you're, I'm going to try and condense it down to about 35 minutes or so. However, if I don't get through it, I'll just stop and restart it next week. Is that 3D? Are those 3D goggles? Are you, are you trying to say that I've got such a depth to me that you need to see, look at me in 3D goggles? For anybody listening to the CD here, be glad you're not here today. Brilliant. Okay, let's get started. Psalm 78, verse 7. Look down and see it. Top of page 590. Then they would put their trust, or probably more accurately, hope. Okay, they would put their trust, hope, in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. Life now for any of you and for me is shaped by what you think the future will be. So, to quote my favourite quote by Homer Simpson, Eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we... No? Homer Simpson? Diet! So in other words, because he's starting a diet tomorrow, he will stop himself now, okay? Our lives will be planned and shaped. We will do today what we think will impact tomorrow. So whatever you hope for or expect in the future will shape what you are doing day by day. And can I tell you that every day, children are looking for something to put their hope and invest their life in. Every day. They're looking around, sensing, trying to find a value or something of value to, to, to latch on to and to build their life upon, to put their trust in, to put their hope in. So here's a question for us to ask ourselves. What, how would our kids complete this sentence? What mum and dad want for me is... Okay? Bit of a killer, that one, isn't it? Try that again. So think of the children that either belong to you. If you are not a parent at the moment, perhaps you are thinking that one day you may be. And if that's the case, what, what would you, how would you want your kids to fulfil that sentence? Okay. What mum and dad want for me is... Because whatever the answer to that question is, is what you and I have taught our youngsters to hope for, to put their trust in, what life is all about... It's the thing that will shape their day-by-day actions and what they spend their time on and what they pursue and what they give themselves to. Today we're asking the bigger question, not what does what mum and dad wants for me, but what does God, our good heavenly father, want for us? What does he want us to hope in? What does he want us to build our life upon? What does he want us to trust in? Now, I need, we need to identify this because we talk about our children. Biblically speaking, can I tell you that all the little kids there... They are God's children, they are his, and they are lent to us to bring up. You know, we have this phrase, don't we, loco parentis, which basically means when a kid is at school, they are under the guardianship of the school and the teachers in the place of the parents. Well, if you're a mum and dad here today, you are loco parentis for God. He has lent his kids to you for you to bring up in his place as he watches over you and encourages you and equips you to do that. So that's why we have to ask this question. What is it that God wants for my youngsters? Um, And we need to broaden this out a little bit and say, well, in that case, what does he want for each one of our lives? Not just for people who are parents here. Perhaps if you're a youth group leader or you work in Speak Kids or you do Welcome Club. 
what, do you, what does God want for the lives of the, either the youngsters, the children, or the seniors of who you're looking to care for? Perhaps you're a family member and you've got people, whether it, is a, whether it is a parent or a son or daughter for you. What is it that God wants for them? If you're somebody just sitting here and you're just asking that question, well, what does God want for me in my life? It will be exactly the same thing as he wants for the children that we're called to bring up. And it will be all shaped by the gospel. It will be shaped by the gospel. Um, hold on, there's something in my book I wanted to read to you. Where are we? I'm going to quote out this book every now and again because there's just a few things in here I found particularly helpful. Okay? The first thing we need to say is that doing this business of looking after people and caring for them is not actually going to be easy. So if you are a parent, can I first of all tell you, you've got my sympathies. This is what's said. In addition to your inadequacies, there are external stresses. Some of your children might die prematurely. Others might enter the world with congenital defects. Others, still others, like ours, might go through difficult stages of rebellion. Some will be bright, some will be talented, all good-looking. Others will be slow, average, and unattractive. Some will have easy personalities. It will take all your perseverance and tenacity to love them. Is that right? Of course it is. So if we're going to be asking this question... What is it that we want our kids to build their life upon, trust in, set their hope about? We've got to know that it's it's going to be difficult to get them there. But second of all, we need to know that the gospel will shape absolutely everything. Who God is and what he is like and what he does will be the model for how it is we interact with our youngsters and the agendas and the hopes and the plans that we have for them. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's only two things in this current world that are eternal and last forever. Do you know what they are? According to the Bible, there's two things. Number one is the word of God, and number two are the souls of our children. We last forever. And it's interesting, isn't it, that God gives us, out of eternity, on and 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 on, God gives us 18 years to set them in the right direction. A small 18 years that will affect where they are 50 billion years from now. So he's trusted us with quite a good job. Quite a big job. Quite a frightening job. So here it is. What is it that we're supposed to do so nobody can forget it? Verse 7 again. Then they would put their trust or hope in God and would not forget his deeds but would keep his commands. So let me ask you this. What have been your goals if you're a parent here today? What have been your goals, your hopes, the encouragements that you have given to your children, the direction that you have set them on? Here's a few that sometimes people have for their kids. My goal and my aim for my child today is just to keep quiet so I can get through the day. Does that sound familiar? When you've got five girls in one house. Oh yes. Um, another goal we have for our kids so often is to milk life now, don't we? So we get them involved in just about as much as we can. We try to give them, fulfill every element of their potential here and now. Give them every opportunity. In fact, that's the good thing that's put out in all the, the, the magazines that you find on the, on the racks and in so many of the self-help books. What does it mean to be a parent? Give them every opportunity to flourish here and now in the things that, that they want to pursue. 
Okay? Some people, maybe you've been around the church long enough to say, actually, the big goal for my kids, I've got to get them saved. I've got to get them to pray a prayer. Okay? That's what I must do. There was one lady who, who, who was, who, who was uh, spoken to at a parenting conference, and, and she went up to the speaker at the end, and, and she said, listen, after listening to what you've said, I am going to make my kids Christians if it's the last thing I ever do. Got a feel for those kids. They're going to get battered, aren't they? Absolutely battered. We're going to find out later that none of us have it within our power to make our children believers. How about here's another one. Um, my ambition for my kid is that they would be well behaved. I just want a child who, when I take them to a restaurant, will sit down. I just want a kid that when I put them to bed one evening, when I get them up the next morning, they're not behave- behaving like a Martian. I just want a kid who will behave and settle down and not embarrass me when I'm in front of my mates. Some of you are smiling, aren't you? Because you're like, yeah, yeah. Steve, if you could give me that, I'd give you all the teen china. Brilliant. That would be great. I want my kids to have a good education. Because education creates opportunities. Good education. So I'll work them, work them, work them, work them, work them. I want my kids to help me live my life. I want to live my life through my kids. See, there's a whole stack, five, six, seven of them that we've just listed there. None of which individually are bad things, but if they're the central goal for your parenting, what are you likely to do with your child? Kill them. Berate them. You're going to teach them all kinds of silly and wrong values. All of, all of those things, in their own way, had some good elements. They're not the big thing that we're aiming for because all those things ultimately will destroy the soul of your youngster. In all of these, they may be good, but when they're made the centre which God should occupy, they will consume life. So let's go back again. Chapter seven, uh, 78, verse 5. That they would put their trust in, getting through the day, milky life for its all it's worth. Being saved, well-behaved, good education, living my life, but no, that they would put their trust in God and God alone. That they would build their life on Him and put their hope in Him. Why is it that we need to teach our kids this? Why is it that we need to have that goal for our kids? Well, we're going to see three things very quickly, and like I say, if we don't get through them, we don't get through them, I'll carry on where we go. Three things we need to see, all of them are found in this psalm. Number one, who our kids are, number two, what they need, and number three, how we do it. Okay? Who they are, what they need, and how we do it. Okay? Number one, who are they? One of the things about getting old is you keep bumping into somebody you don't recognise. So you walk in past the mirror, and you sort of catch this glance, and you go, whoa, who are you? You. You look old. Whoa. You look like my dad. How did that happen? It can't be as it is. And we find that just here, if you look down in verse 8, that they would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. According to the Bible, we will pick up the traits of our parents, which frighteningly is me, I'm a parent, and I know my parents as well, we will pick up the stubbornness and rebelliousness that comes by being human and being born into a fallen world. So what is it that you get when you come home from the hospital carrying that lovely little bundle of love? What you get is something that is cute 
and cuddly and helpless and made in the image of God, but he's a complete, utter God-hater. isn't just neutral, but actually has a, a preset against God and wants to be king of its own little world. Only somebody who hasn't been a parent would argue with this. In fact, poor little uh, Lucy out there, last night she was being fed wonderfully good milk. She was hungry. But every time you try and put the bottle in her mouth, throw in a tantrum. Purely because she didn't want to have the bottle when she didn't want to have the bottle. And say, hold on, Steve, this is possibly a little bit harsh. Well, let's get it a little bit more even vivid. Flick back to Psalm 58. You're in Psalm 78, flick to Psalm 58, and you'll see it here. Okay, I'll read verse 2 and 3. No, in your heart you devise injustice, and your hands meet out violence on the earth. Even from birth the wicked go astray. From the womb they are wayward and speak lies. Their venom is like the venom of snakes, and so on and so on and so on. I'm talking about little cute babies who we put in a nice little bonnet and put a balloon when they're born to celebrate. (laughs) Great. Psalm 51, just go back over one page. 51 verse 5, I'm sorry, two pages. 51 verse 5. This is King David being honest as he looked at himself. So this isn't just a declaration on others. This is him looking at himself. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You see, this is what the Bible assumes, that cute, cuddly thing that is made in the image of God and can bring so much joy is simultaneously a lovable, helpless sinner. Kids aren't innocent, though they may be cute. They are irresistibly drawn, inclined towards selfishness and being anti-God. And if we're back in Psalm 78, we'll see what the root of that is. Psalm 78, verse 8, we've already read it, we'll read it again. They would not be like their forefathers, which is like us, like father, like son, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. Which basically tells us that you can't, well, just going around fixing a kid's behaviour won't help change them at all, because the outward behaviour is only an overflow and an expression of what's going on in the heart. They've got a heartfelt self-centeredness and selfishness and anti-godness. And if we, all we try to do is tinker with their behaviour, then actually we'll only get, themselves, get ourselves into more trouble. Uh, I want to think a little bit about this, because so often it's, Steve, how do I teach my kids to behave? How do I do it? And our favourite ways are, threaten them or promise them the reward. Okay, control them or bribe them. But neither of those things will help because of the nature of the problem. Uh, keep your finger in Psalm 78. We'll be back in a minute. Flick forward to the New Testament to Mark chapter 7. Somebody shout out a page number for us. Mark chapter 7. And this is Jesus' verdict on all of us. So whether you're a child or whether you're an adult, it's Jesus' verdict on you and me and the youngsters we're to care for. 1,010, you should have it. 1,010. Verse 20 and 20 to 23. Okay? This is Jesus talking about why just cleaning up the outside of a life doesn't help whatsoever. He went on, verse 20. 
He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. So it's from the inside. For from within, out of men's hearts, or child children's hearts, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils, these behaviours, come from inside and make a person unclean. So that rather fat Baptist pastor, not called Steve, but called Spurgeon, once said, if those outward behaviours, if those are the bees, imagine what the hive is like. The place where they all come from. Why? Because the human heart is corrupt and deceitfully wicked above all other things. If all we do, and there are churches that do this with people, let alone parents, if all we do is try to get people to conform to outward patterns of behaviour, sit up straight, be on time, don't hit, eat your tea, don't snatch, play nice, do as you're told, If all we do is try and get them to conform to outward behaviour, what we do is we cut off one of the unlimited number of selfish outlets to that heart inside. So the second that you tell them, stop hitting your brother and sister, the next moment they're not hitting them anymore, they're snatching. And you can't fight fires at that place. We were never made to. You need to go to the root, to the heart that is right at the centre. It comes from inside. Which also means as well that so often we treat our children's naughtiness as if it's been some sort of contagious disease that they've caught. So, we'll say, oh, won't have my kids play with those kids. Dear me, no. I let them go round there once and they came back like little terrorists. Nope, uh, oh, they teach my kids all kinds of oh, terrible. According to this, that's not true. Do our kids be, get influenced by other people's behaviours? Yes. But they have been... Other, other kids, or even other examples of adults, or even a music video, it, it might be more outwardly rebellious. But our children... Well, what they were doing was having the... the, the the flames fanned into life of attitudes that actually lay dormant within them already. If you like, it's just like having the brakes taken off. Our kids don't learn naughtiness. It's in there already. It just sometimes gets shown a different outlet and a way to behave. So if you think about Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, let me just read it to you rather than you digging it out. I meant to write it down so it wouldn't take me time. It says, above all else, let me see what I can do for a moment. Above all else, guard the heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Let me just double check I've got that right. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. What we try to do is guard our kids' behaviour, when actually what we should be trying to do is guard their hearts, which is a little bit more difficult. So you take a little boy and a toy. He loves, he's got his heart set on his toys. And you see him in a conversation and he's arguing with another little lad over the toy. So what do we do? We talk to them about why you must not love, uh, so you must not argue over toys. And what that's done is it's dealt with the behaviour a little bit, but it hasn't dealt with what's going on. You see, what the real problem was, was not the arguing, but it was the love of toys. 
You can tell when somebody loves something too much. If they love it so much, it means they're prepared to sin to get it or to keep it. So, what you, I mean, this is a great one for you to ask yourselves right now. Ask yourself this question. What am I prepared, what do I love so much that I'm prepared to sin to keep it or to get it? It could be respect. It could be money. It could be a relationship. It could be anything. So here's the little boy with his toy. So to keep it, he's prepared to hit his brother. He's prepared to lie. When asked, where, is, where have you put the toy? I don't know. Why? Because he wants to guard it and keep it safe. Um, he's prepared to stubbornly shake his hands at his uh, mum and dad when they say, look, we're going to go to the shop. Like, no, I want to go play with my toy. I want to play with my toy. That's how I used to do it anyway. Okay. At playtime, mummy and daddy have lovely got the food for them ready at the table. And the idea that he should stop playing with his toys, he stamps and he throws a tantrum and he says, you don't love me. What's the problem? Is the problem the toy? There's nothing wrong with the toy. It's the way his heart has fallen in love, set its trust and its hope and its joy on the toy. And it's controlling him and turning him, quite frankly, into a little brat. So how do we fix it? Do we take the toy away? Oh, you've been naughty. Not until you've sorted out your outward behaviour will you get the toy back. Well, the toy's not the problem. The heart is. We need to redirect the love of his heart towards something that is better and more beautiful. The toy is not the problem, but the love of the toy. He's putting his hope in the toy rather than the, fact, uh, uh, rather than the giver, the good God. So I hope you're already seeing that but Oh, shall I press the button? Uh, okay. I hope you're understanding under this first point of, you know, what are our kids like? What are they? That this whole business of caring for them or caring for our own spiritual lives is going to be a lot more than just sorting out your outward behaviour. How many people do you think, or you, uh, do you, know, you know, think that Christianity is all about sorting out the outside? Have you noticed the most common complaint put to people who are believers? You're a bunch of hypocrites. What do hypocrites do? They clean up the outside and on the inside they're just as rotten as everybody else. That's you and me and that's our kids too. That is what we are like as people. We need our hearts to be changed. So it's going to be more complicated bringing up a child than simply applying pressure to make them conform or else offering them a nice incentive. You sit still in church and we'll go for a nice meal afterwards. You sit still in church and I'll whack them. Not that any of us parents have ever done that in this building, have we? So I point the finger, there's three pointing back. It doesn't quite get to the heart, does it? All it does is make your child, they see straight through it. They know that it's all about you and not about them. And are they going to respond to that? Oh no. Oh no. The real danger though... The real danger is that if all we do is change that outward behaviour, do you know there's a Bible word for that, or a Bible category for people who've just changed the outside? What is it? Jesus didn't get on very well with them. The Pharisees. Hypocrites. That's what he called them. Because all they did was change the outward behaviour. Now this is really serious. I don't want this one to flow by you, okay? This is what Paul Tripp in that book there we can read about, he says, a change of behaviour that does not proceed from the heart 
is not commendable, get this, it is condemnable. That sounds, that sounds rather harsh, Steve, are you sure? Why? Well, if it's just at the level of behaviour, and especially if they succeed and actually start to think that they're good, we fail, and we fail to point them to their own helplessness, we direct them away from the gospel of a saviour who comes to meet us at our point of need, and in fact as they spend their life trying to live up to this, they will go one of two ways, they will either become very proud or utter failures and hate God because of it. So if all we do is teach our kids to behave, we're going to make them haters of the gospel. They're going to hate it, because they can't live up to it. That's what they think the gospel's all about. So the gospel is people who know their hearts and know that everything within them needs salvation. That's what the gospel teaches us. We need a rescuing Lord. So we need, we need, our kids need to see that. So who are our kids? Answer. They are helpless but valuable. They're sinners who give their hearts and trust and hope in everything but the one whom they were made to know and trust and walk with day by day. Kids are God-haters. Don't we know it? And so would all of us be if the Lord hadn't broken into our lives by his grace. So that helps us answer the second thing that we said. Who are our kids? Well, what do they need? Well, you've already got a little bit of that answer. Let me see how I'm doing on time here. We're not doing too bad, okay. What they need. Okay, well, let's have a look at it in verses 1 to 3. Oops, hold on, I'm still here. Psalm 78, verses 1 to 3. We'll see it here. O my people, hear my teaching, listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. We need wisdom to break in from the outside. Our kids need a new, fresh, different interpretation. Not based on what their heart is telling them they need, but on the God from outside who breaks into people's lives and refocuses and changes the direction of their life. Apparently, in the last 10 years, there have been nearly 75,000 books on parenting published. Who publishes these books? I have absolutely no idea. They obviously are parents because they've got too much time on their hands. But most of those, most of them will have good advice in one form or another, but will they have this right at the centre? I doubt it, to be honest with you. What our kids need is that they need to be shaped by what the real problem is. And it will be that problem that dictates the method. So if the problem is their hearts trusting and depending and looking to things that are wrong and were never meant to take that place in their life, we need to employ methods that will show them their heart. Not just try and smart them up so they look presentable. We need to employ methods that will turn their hope and trust from the things within the creation towards the true and living God, the saviour of sinners. Now, I hope you get this. We are called... (laughs) I almost feel an idiot saying this to you. We are called under God to bring them up to know, love, and build their life upon God, the God they hate. Good luck. Live long and prosper. There you go. See, they need God's wisdom and love to break in from the outside. And we have been tasked 
with the unenviable task, if you're a parent, of delivering it. It is not a job that you should ask for if you want to be popular, liked, or want an easy life. But the New Testament holds two truths simultaneously that help us put this task into perspective. Number one is this. It's found in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So in other words, your little lovely cannot know God unless God acts sovereignly to draw that little one towards him. Any of us who come near to God do so because he's already started coming near to us and drawing us near. And it's the same with our children. So whether our children trust God or not, it's actually out of our hands. We can't do a fat loss. It's one of the paralyzing things about being a minister and being a preacher. Every week, you know, I get to open God's Word thinking, wow, this is awesome. And I know that I've got to offer it up to you lot, but I'm not in control as to whether it goes to 6 inches, 12 inches from your head to your heart. Only the Lord is sovereign over that. So it can be quite depressing, can't it? How many of you have got stories of how you've tried to do the right thing with your kids and no matter how much you do it, it didn't make a fat lot of difference? But if that's one truth, the other truth is this. According to the scriptures, God uses means. That's the one that's on show here. Oh my people, hear my teaching, listen to the words of my mouth. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us, that's what we're going to pass on. We will not hide it from the children. So God assumes that the way that he will do that work of drawing people to himself, drawing youngsters to himself, the means he appoints is parents. Does that mean that every parent who has a child and every parent who loves the Lord Jesus, their children will become believers? Well, that's not the promise. The promise is only this, that the means the Lord uh, chooses to use most commonly are the parents. Now you might look at your little lovelies and go, but he's matched you up. Frightening that, isn't it? Under his good sovereign hand, he has given just the right parents to just the right kids so that he may use that as a means by which to bring them to faith. So that means that you don't need to be in despair when you think about what they need, those little God haters. You can have confidence. You are his primary means if you are a parent. You were designed for it. So what they need is this they need help to see their hearts so they can see their helplessness and run for salvation. That's what they need. They need people who love them enough to do the hard work of exposing all the false trusts and hopes that they put their hope on. All those things as empty and vain and even vile in the light of who God is and how wonderful he is. So we lovingly spend ourselves as parents We lovingly spend ourselves on them so that they will willingly, gladly, with delight, yield themselves up to the Lord's mercy. Trusting that, well we do that, trusting that only God can actually do that task. So the first thing, it's not up there, hold on, let's see if we can get this working. The first thing is, uh, who are our kids? The second thing is, what they need. The third and final thing is, Okay, Steve, we've been sitting here uh, listening all this time. How do we go about doing it? Hold on. I'm not going to get through all of this, am I? This is the exciting bit. This is what you... Can't say all that, Steve, and then stop. Well, maybe not all of you, anyway. We'll see. 
Okay, so how do we do it? Right? This is obvious. I put a 10p here, and I put a £20 note here. I line all the kids out there up, down there, and I, go, I say to them, go and stand by the thing that you want. Okay, 20 kids, which one are they going to stand by? Emily's done. She'll look at the shiny silver one and think that's great. But the rest of them will probably go to the, the £20 notes. We, by nature, have been made to desire things and to desire things and to want things and to want to trust things and want to hope in things is a good thing. And we will, by nature, drift towards the thing that we think offers us the most, is the most beautiful, is the most valuable, can meet our deepest needs. So chapter 4, verse 7 of Psalm 78 tells us this. We will not hide from their, from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law of Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children, so that the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children, then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. Do you see that? What we do is we show them how much more beautiful, how much more magnificent, how much more valuable, how much more desirable is the wonderful Lord Jesus Christ. Show them Christ, and then they'll see the emptiness of the things that they set their heart on. Have you noticed that every week when I preach a sermon, who does it focus on? You? Who does that focus on every week? Whether I'm in Leviticus, whether I'm in Revelation, whether I'm in John, or whether I'm in Romans, who does it always focus you on? I'm getting worried now. Okay, in case you've missed it, and you've been nodded asleep, every week what I do is I try to show you how wonderful Jesus is. Because I know... And the Bible tells us, and tells me and tells you, that we will drift towards it, whatever we know is the most beautiful. And our kids are exactly the same. There's this essay, I referred to it on a number of times, it was written in the 1600s by a Scottish Presbyterian by the name of Thomas Chalmers. And it's a great title for an essay. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And this is what it says. The best way to overcome the world is not morality or self-discipline. In other words, you want to overcome the challenges of living and trusting in Jesus. If you want to like, stay faithful to him and go on, if you want to adore him, what you do is you don't tie yourself up with morality and self-discipline, because that's all on the outside. Christians, he says, overcome the world by seeing the beauty and excellence of Christ. I suppose I wrote this down because I knew knew, uh, Nathan was here and I've I've noticed his heart drifting of late and this illustrates it. Who wants to give their heart to Ipswich Town when they can follow the mighty Reds? Isn't that right, Proby? Yeah, you see he's already drifting, he already wants a season ticket at at Anfield. He's changing, he's seen the... You get the idea, okay? So this must be the big agenda for you and me if we're looking after youngsters. This immediately shows us how difficult it is if you're assuming that the thing that you've got to do with your kid is just get them to go to a Christian youth group or a Christian club. Because in an hour a week, you can't hold up the glories and the splendours of Jesus. 
You can't live it out day by day in front of them. So they say, yes, that's what I really need. It means that as we think in the future as, as a church family together as to how we care for them as they become teenagers, it tells you that it's not something that we can outsource to a bunch of willing but probably a little bit muggish and mug written on their head youth leaders. No, this is something that ultimately has got to be in the home to which the church's involvement is the icing on the cake. It's got our parents who are really proactive in this, constantly holding up the beauty, the beauty, the beauty of Jesus. And there's two ways in which we do it. Oh dear. The two ways in which we do it are very simply. We do it by our word and we do it by our walk. We do it by our word and we do it by our walk. I reckon it will take me ten minutes to unpack them. Should we leave until next week? What do you reckon, John? What should we do now? That was non-committal? We'll do it next week. Okay. So, where is it we have been? Okay. Where is it we've been? We have seen that parenting is God's idea and it's all about redirecting and focusing our kids on what they're going to put their hope, their trust and build their life upon. By instinct, who are they when they come out? Who are they when they pop out and get delivered to us? God haters. So if God is over there, they're going that way, following their heart's desires, believing they know what's best for them and trying to build their own little kingdom. What is it that we need to do? What we need to do is not to merely focus on their outward behaviour, but by aiming at their hearts, helping them to be wise to the state of their own hearts, and show them that there is one who is bigger and greater and altogether more beautiful than anything they would set their life on now. Any amount of money, any amount of prestige, any amount of reputation, any amount of a good relationship, anything. He outstrips them all, and we get to do that. We get to live that and to do that, and we'll see how through our word and our walk next week. Let me finish with one thing. Here we go for a bit of fun. I wonder whether you hear yourself in this. This is C.S. Lewis, and he talks about what it means to get up every morning, and this is what our, the world our kids get up and into. Okay? I think he's very observant the way he says this. The moment you wake up each morning, and this is your kids every day, and this is you, the moment you wake up each morning, all your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. The first job of each morning consists in shoving them all back, in listening to that other voice taking that other point of view, letting that other, larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in. He's saying that every day, we need to help our kids as we need to help ourselves meet with God and set the agenda and be the thing that we build our trust and our hope on. Let's pray that for ourselves and let's pray that for our kids now before we sing. Lord, we thank you that you know us, you know what we're like from the bottom to the top. Lord, you know how we have so often set our hearts on empty and vain things. We have been that little boy in his toy. And we are doing things, even now we do things that we're prepared to sin in order to get our heart's desire. And we ask, O Lord, that you'd hold yourself at large in our eyes, that week by week, day by day, we would fight back that 
those wild animals rushing at us in the morning, those hopes and desires that are vain and empty, and you would speak from outside into us the wonderful hope of knowing you, being forgiven, and walking with you as our King. So we pray that for our families. We pray that for the kids of this church. We pray that for the kids and the families of this estate. And we ask, O Lord, that you would help us to know how best to hold up you to needy people. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The song that we're about to sing is a